the last psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 150 says in verse 3, praise him with this trumpet sound. So that's what we have just heard, some praising of God with the trumpet sound. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 24, where we are going to begin this morning. Last week, we looked at four Beatitudes, and we asked the question in the sermon title, uh, is your, your persecution, your sufferings, a blessing. And this morning, the question is, is your prosperity a curse? And uh, when you look at these titles, you may be thinking to yourself, well, it seems like prosperity is a blessing from God, and it is. But what we are talking about, remember, is spiritual things, spiritual realities in the Beatitudes and in the four woes that we are going to be looking at this morning. And so keep that in mind. Now, do you know what Clark Pinnock and John Wenham and Bertrand Russell and Raymond Moody and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and John Hick and John A.T. Robinson and Michael Green and Philip E. Hughes and John Stott and Jehovah Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists all have in common? They all deny the reality of hell. Think about that. Some of these are... Pretty famous theologians and preachers and writers all have an influence. A couple have died and they've changed their view. (laughs) But among people like this, you have two different groups. There is what is called the universalists who say everybody gets to go to heaven. You could be an idol worshiping pagan. You could be a Satanist. And you know, God is so loving. He is just so gracious and so kind. He would never send anyone to hell that is universalism another view says uh, that hell is nothing more than uh, a kind of a concept uh, a kind of a divine threat that you're just going to once you die just be put out of existence some might go as far to say well no no you you stand before judgment the judgment seat you're judged and then you're put out of existence And most churches today wanting to uh, make people feel good as their highest priority. To them, hell is a bad four-letter word that you would never want to utter uh, in public because it might make people feel bad. Some think the doctrine of hell is unjust. It's just not right that God should eternally punish sinners. Others think that it disparages the character of God and that makes God into some sort of extreme mean ogre, some uh, hideous, grotesque being whose whose uncontrolled uh, vengeance just continues on forever and ever for no reason. But nothing could be further from the truth. The God we worship, the God we sing songs to here and we praise here, the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire, a God of holiness, justice, wrath, recompense, vengeance, and to worship any other God, to worship any God who isn't any one of these things is to worship an idol, a God who doesn't exist. It is to create God in your own mind because the God of the Bible is all of these things. Amazingly, Time Magazine did a poll in 1997 
And they asked people if they believed in hell, a place where people are eternally tormented forever and ever. And surprisingly, 63% of Americans said they believed in hell. Scary thing is, is that out of the 100% polled, only 1% thought they were going there. And this may be the reason why so many people have no problem believing in hell because so many people are deluded to thinking they're not going there. They're good people. God wouldn't send a good person like them to hell. They've done more good than bad. It's not like they're Hitler or some serial killer. And add this to the increasing false doctrines being promoted as a, uh, that, you know, when you die, everybody gets saved or that hell is just a place where you're just put out of existence. Then what is the threat? What is the wrath of God we're supposed to flee from? If you live your life here on earth and you don't love God, you don't love Christ and you don't want to submit to him or live for him, then being put out of existence would be a blessing. Because why would you want to go to heaven where the whole purpose of heaven is to submit to the one that you've hated all your life? The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that if you break one commandment, you break them all. And some people have this thought, well, you know, I've never murdered anyone. They love to bring up murder. Jesus says, listen, if you've been angry with somebody, that is the same sin as murder. Just not to the same degree. It's just a lesser form of murder. Anger is what gives birth to murder. And you think, well, I've never robbed a bank. Well, have you ever stolen anything, even a paperclip? Well, well, no, you say. Well, amazing. (laughs) But have you ever coveted anything? Coveting is stealing, bank robbing in the bud. The reason people rob banks is they covet the money. And all of us have coveted. And you say, well, I've never committed adultery, but have you lusted after someone in your heart? Well, Jesus said that's to commit adultery in your heart. You may not have, you know, bowed down to some wooden idol. But anytime you have placed anything before God and given to anything, that duty, that honor, that worship, that adoration, that time, that finances, or anything that God deserves, you have committed idolatry. When you put all these things together, you deserve to go to hell. Everyone does. And God cannot and will not set aside his holy justice and wrath. He will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished is what the scriptures say in many places. He has to do it. When you are an infinitely just God, there is only one thing that will satisfy your justice, and that is people paying the penalty, the full penalty. Jesus is your only hope because of this. You see, the wicked... Because they don't love God and they spend their whole life sinning against God and they die never having received Jesus Christ as their savior end up going into hell where they then curse God, get angry at God and continue to fuel their own judgment for all eternity. And because they will never bow the knee, they never 
end their suffering and misery for their sin is so huge and continuing that it never ends. And God can't just say, well, you know, I'm going to accept your rebellion against me. I'm going to accept all of your unloving acts. I am just going to ignore those things that you did in thought and deed, which undermine my character. That is not love. That would be to make God an unloving God because love rejoices in truth and does not rejoice in unrighteousness. And so to just accept it, to just ignore it would be to be unloving and God is loving. And that is why he must punish sin. So don't be deceived. God isn't kidding about hell. God is no thornless rosebush. He's not a man with a rubber knife. The Bible is not jesting when it threatens hell to unrepentant sinners. Hell is not some sort of divine hoax to manipulate ignorant people into doing what God wants them to do. It's not a terrorist tactic. It's no idle threat. It's not make-believe. It wasn't something the biblical writers borrowed from Greek mythology. It is a real place where real people go and suffer day and night forever and ever. The Bible describes hell as outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, a fiery furnace, eternal fire, eternal punishment, agonizing flame, the wrath of God, a place of no escape, the black darkness, torment, a place of no rest, the lake of fire, burning brimstone, and the second death. And do you really think Christ is such a gracious savior that he will set aside his infinite justice and your hatred of him all of your life? Dying in an unrepentant state and just say, oh, well, think again. Think again. If you think God is so loving that he will love sin in order to not punish you, you are grossly mistaken. God hates sin more than you know. And when you think about the lengths that God has gone to to save sinners, it gives you a picture of just how much God hates sin. When you realize that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, lived in this sin-cursed world, was tortured to death by sinners, took upon himself the sins of the world and suffered the wrath of God in your place, then you begin to get a glimpse of just how much God hates sin. I mean, he wants to save sinners and he went to great lengths to save sinners. Nahum in Nahum chapter 1 verses 2 through 8 gives us a clear picture of God's holy justice and describes God as jealous, avenging, wrathful, taking vengeance on his adversaries, reserving wrath for his enemies, indignant against sinners, burning in anger, and pursuing his enemies into darkness. Jonathan Edwards, famous for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, wrote a handful of sermons on hell and the judgment of God. Most people think you know, when because we read about sinners in the hands of an angry God in American literature class in high school or college, that all Jonathan Edwards did was preach on hell. As a matter of fact, in his whole life, he only preached, I think, six or seven sermons on hell or God's judgment. But he did such a good job. And sermons on hell are so rare that they have become famous. 
Another sermon, which is less familiar, he preached called the future punishment of the wicked, unavoidable and intolerable. And it comes from Ezekiel twenty two fourteen, where God speaking to, to the people of Israel through Ezekiel tells them, listen, you've sinned against me. You haven't repented. You haven't turned from your sin. And God says this, can your heart endure or your hands be strong in the days that I will deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will act. And Edwards, from that text, begins to preach on how when God deals with somebody because of their sin, they cannot endure it. And this is what Edwards preached. Quote, imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven of a great furnace where your pain would be as much greater than that occasioned by the accidental touching of a coal of fire as the heat is greater. Imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour, all the while full of quick sense. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? And how long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? And after you had endured it for one minute, how overbearing would it be to you to think that you had it to endure for another 14? But what would be the effect on your soul if you knew you must lie there enduring that torment to the full 24 hours? And how much greater would the effect be if you knew you must endure it for a whole year? And how vastly greater still if you knew you must endure it for a thousand years? Oh, then, how would your heart sink if you thought you knew that you must bear it forever and ever, that there would be no end? That after millions of millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to the end than it ever was. And that you never, never should be delivered. But your torment in hell will be immensely greater than this illustration represents, end quote. That is scary. This morning we come to Luke 6, 24 through 26, where we will examine part of the Sermon on the Mount. As Luke puts it, he calls it the Sermon on the Plain. Luke or Mark, Matthew calls it the Sermon on the Mount. It's because Jesus went up a mount, found a flat place, and they sat down on the plain on the mountain. So last week, we looked at the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, they were so encouraging. So many people came up and said, oh, I was just so blessed last week. That, you know, God's grace is so good and that how all these things, which a lot of times we see are bad, are really manifestations of God's grace working in our life and we need to praise him for it. And that is true. The Beatitudes show us that God's grace is working in us. But what about unbelievers? What about those who don't have God's grace working in us, in them? What about those who go through life knowing they're not Christians or thinking they are being deceived that they're Christians when they're not. What about them? Well, it just so happens that Jesus tells us exactly about them. After he gives four beatitudes, he then gives four antithetical opposite woes. The word woe is an exclamation of grief and misery, usually brought on by the judgment of God. 
For instance, Jesus pronounces woe on the city of Chorazin and Bethsaida in Matthew eleven twenty one because he had done so many miracles there and preached the gospel there so hard and yet they did not repent. So Jesus says, woe to you. In other words, you're going to be judged. He said it would be more tolerable in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Now think about that. I mean, there was nothing left of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was burnt off the face of the earth. In Matthew 18, 7, Jesus pronounces woe on those who cause believers to stumble. Eight times in Matthew 23, Jesus pronounced woe on the hypocritical, unbelieving Pharisees. In Matthew 26, 24, Jesus pronounces woe on Judas Iscariot who would betray him. Throughout the book of Revelation, you read of woe after woe, which brings God's judgment upon the earth. It's just saying judgment is coming and it's going to be really bad. So when Jesus says woe in our text this morning, I just want you to know what he's talking about. He's not talking about stopping a horse. He's not giving a line to a 50s tune. He is saying divine judgment is upon you if you do not humble yourselves, repent and bow your knee to me. And since God's judgment for sinners is eternal punishment in hell, when Jesus says, woe, he's really saying, damned to hell are or destined for the lake of fire are you. So as we work through Luke 6, 24 through 26 this morning, realize Jesus is calling down damnation and judgment upon a certain class of people with certain attitudes and who experience certain circumstances in their life. Also realize that each of the four woes in this section is antithetical to the Beatitudes. Exactly opposite of each one of the four blessings comes four woes that are exactly opposite. And just as each of the Beatitudes had four promises, blessings for those who experience those Beatitudes, so each of the woes has four promises of judgment to those who experience these woes in their life. And also important to remember that Jesus is not talking about physical things. You can come to this and just think that, oh, God wants me financially poor, physically hungry, miserable, and persecuted all the time. And that's what being a Christian is all about. He's not talking about that. He was saying, we learned last week, we are blessed when we realize we are poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. He, he says we are blessed when we hunger and thirst for Christ's righteousness. He's saying when we weep over our sin, when we realize we're sinners and we mourn over our sins and we just think, Lord, I am such a wretch. That is such a good thing. He's saying when you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness or for Christ's sake, praise God. Wouldn't it be bad if you could be like Christ and they crucified him, but they didn't even persecute you? Something would be wrong there. So the more you receive that persecution, the more you receive opposition for righteousness sake, the more you can praise God because God's blessing is working in your life. And also remember that Jesus is ministering around Galilee and words gotten out that he can heal. 
And he is an incredible preacher. And so all these people from the most populated areas from around Galilee, which would be to the west along the coastlands and south in the area of Jerusalem, are all converging upon Galilee. It says a huge throng of people all wanting to be healed and to hear Jesus preach have all just clustered around him on this plain, on this mountain. And when Jesus begins his sermon, he just must have shocked them with the Beatitudes. He must have just shocked them. Because most of the people would have been thinking what? About physical things. And Jesus is saying, you're blessed if you're financially poor? What? You're blessed if you're physically hungry? What? You're blessed if you're sorrowful with worldly grief? What? You're blessed when you're persecuted? Are you kidding me? And most of the Jews would have been baffled. They would have thought, what is he talking about? What is this? I'm blessed if I'm poor and hungry and sorrowful and persecuted. And they wouldn't have had any idea what he was talking about. Because most Jews thought, well, when God's blessing is upon you, you're what? You're financially rich, you're well-fed, you're, you're, you're happy, and you're not persecuted. You have peace in the world. Because God makes even you know, our enemies to be at peace with us. And they'd be thinking of Abraham. Look at Abraham. Abraham was rich. And God really blessed him. He was blessed. What is this? What are you talking about? And some probably were extremely offended at the Beatitudes because they're looking at their life and they're thinking physical things while Jesus is preaching about spiritual things and they can't understand what he's saying. And what is amazing is, is Jesus knew this. And what is amazing is, is that Jesus then gives them the exact opposite of the Beatitudes. They're thinking to themselves, no, no, he's got it wrong. Rich well-fed, happy, and not persecuted are the true indicators of God's blessing. And then he gives them our text this morning. And listen to what he says. Look at Luke six twenty four and following. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. And just imagine how that just would have just exasperated them to no end if they were thinking about physical things, which most of them were. They'd just be thinking to themselves, how can this be? How is this some sort of great teaching? Well, here Jesus presents you with four conditions which characterize the lives of those that show no work of saving grace in their life. And he wants you to know this. He wants all of us to know this so that we will take these things, apply them to our life. And if we see that God's saving grace is not working in our life, we will flee from the wrath to come. So the first point is this. You who are rich are damned. Look at Luke 6.24. Jesus says, but woe to you who are rich. 
Notice the first little word here, but it's the contrast word with saying, okay, we've been talking about those, those characteristics, those attitudes, those experiences, which bring on God's blessing and show his grace is working in your life. But now we're talking about something antithetical, opposite of God's blessing. And this first woe, notice, is antithetical to the beatitude, blessed are you who are poor, poor in spirit, who realize your spiritual bankruptcy. The word rich means to be abundantly supplied or to abound with possessions. Spiritually speaking, it is to think that you are just abounding in spiritual grace, that you are abounding in favor with God, that you're doing great apart from Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.17? He was speaking to a church, remember, a group of believers who congregated every week to, quote, worship and praise God. He's speaking to people who think they are saved. And this is what he says to them in Revelation 3.17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing... And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. You see, the church of Laodicea was very wealthy, like this church. Financially well off, like this church. It was full of people who thought that because they had lots of finances, earthly possessions, therefore they were rich spiritually. Jesus' estimation of them is you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, obviously, they were not talking, he's not talking about physical realities. They were rich, well-fed, happy, and not even persecuted. In their estimation, they were experiencing the blessing of God. And Jesus' estimation is, you are in bad shape. They didn't know they were spiritually bankrupt. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in our text before us this morning. People who don't realize that they're spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ live in a state of judgment, damnation, and impending woe. And notice the judgment that Jesus pronounces on them. The end of the verse, for you are receiving your comfort in full. The church has always had those who mistakenly think that, well, because... You know, I'm a successful businessman and we've got a lot of money here. We've got a nice facility. Therefore, we're all going to heaven. (laughs) Don't even come close to thinking that. When you don't have Christ, you're spiritually poor. You're blind, you're wretched, and you're naked. As Colossians 2.13 says, it is in Christ that are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You don't have Christ, you're a beggar. And when you think you're rich and you're a beggar... You're in trouble because you're heading for judgment. And Jesus wants you to think that you are spiritually poor. He wants you to think that. Because it is only those kind of people who need salvation, who need Christ, who realize they can't save themselves. You need to think about this and ponder this. You may have things... In your life now, you may have possessions, you may have comfort, you may think you're rich, but if you don't have Christ, you're poor. And God's woe is upon you, and if you do not repent, judgment is coming. 
Secondly, you who are well fed are damned. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, woe to you who are well fed now. Of course, this is the opposite of the beatitude. Blessed are you who hunger, that is hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we know that since this is the opposite of those hungering and thirsting for righteousness, Christ's righteousness, that he's talking about those who don't hunger and don't thirst for Christ's righteousness, but think that they're well fed and satisfied in their own righteousness, their self-righteousness. I'm a good person. Those who hunger for Christ's righteousness, they are blessed. Those who think they are righteous in and of themselves, who think they are good, moral, self-righteous, upstanding people, that they've done more good than bad. And when eternity comes, God will weigh their good and bad deeds and go, whoa, your, your good deeds, they're way more than your bad deeds. Come on in. Notice the judgment Jesus pronounces on them. You shall be hungry Well, if the beatitude is you shall be satisfied with the righteousness of Christ forever and ever, then the hunger is you shall never be satisfied with Christ's righteousness ever. You're just going to stay hungry forever. Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? You know, the the, Luke 16, 19 through 31, um, they're... Jesus is telling this parable and some people think it might have been a real life story. Others just a parable. But anyways, it's it's about a man who was very wealthy, was very rich, material speaking, thought he was rich, spiritually speaking. Outside his gates was a beggar who loved God, who was suffering and the dogs were licking his wounds. Eventually, both of them died, which is what always happens to people. And. From hell, the rich man, being in agony in the flames, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And how much mercy did Father Abraham extend to him? None. Then he cried out, send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But he received no water. Lazarus was never sent. He didn't get a drop on his tongue. Then he pleaded, I beg you, father, that you send it to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Lazarus was never raised from the dead. He was never sent to the rich man's brother. He never warned them. The rich man had none of his requests granted. None. He kept on suffering, and if it's a true story, he's still suffering today, and he will always suffer for all eternity. And this is why Jesus says, woe. Third, you who are happy are damned. I mean, I don't know about you, but you read this, and you, you know, if you aren't thinking, if you aren't keeping the spiritual import of this in mind, you can just think Christianity is a bummer. That God wants everybody just miserable and weeping and just, you know, walking around, you know, woe is me, kind of worm theology type thing. Again, Jesus isn't talking about general happiness or enjoying the things of the world or having a party or he's talking about spiritual happiness or satisfaction or contentment apart from repentance and faith in him. And he says, woe to you who laugh now. The beatitude that corresponds to this is blessed are you who weep over your sin. 
So if the opposite is being told here, it's a blessing to acknowledge your sin and to mourn and weep over it. Then he's talking about those who laugh in their sin and about their sin and who don't mourn over their sin. If you sin and feel no remorse, no grief, no sorrow, it is one of the surefire indications you don't have God's spirit within you. Your conscience is seared and you live in a state of woe. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. That word bide means to remain, stay, or abide. He is just under the weight of God's constant and pending judgment. Paul in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 as he is describing all believers before they come to faith in Jesus Christ said this and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest this is the state of all believers they're they're held captive by satan to do his will they're living in sin and they like it They're like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're reveling. They're laughing. A while back, I went down to see West Stone at Cedars Hospital, and I drove down Santa Monica Boulevard, and there was so much carnality paraded on the street. It was amazing. I thought, man, I am thankful for Burbank. (laughs) And Burbank's getting there quick. There were shops and billboards that I just, man, I couldn't even look. You know, we told our kids, don't look right, don't look left, just look down. Um, <laughs> and they're just praying, they're laughing about it, they're reveling in their rebellion. They're children of wrath who will be swept away in the judgment. And notice the consequence at the end of verse 25, for you shall mourn and weep. You know what the Bible says about heaven, don't you? In Revelation 7, 17, it says, God will wipe every tear away from their eyes and there'll be no more what? Weeping. In Revelation 21, 4, God says, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. But those who are happy apart from Christ in this world who are just reveling in their sin and just think it's such a big joke. When you read the paper and you think, oh, that eeks me. And they think, oh, this is so fun. They're going to experience weeping. Seven times in the Gospels, hell is described a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you know why that is? Because the unbelievers live this whole life in rebellion against God. Oh, they may go to church all their life. They may give God the token Sunday morning of their life. But in the bulk of their life, in the heart of their life, during the week, they live for themselves, not the glory of God. And when judgment day finally comes and they're cast into hell, you know what emotion they have? Anger. Anger. I gave you my Sundays. And now I'm in hell? I didn't murder anybody, I'm in hell? And then they're fueled with this rage. And the more they suffer, the more they rage. And their their sin and rebellion just fuels the fire of hell for all eternity. 
And that is why Jesus says, listen, you're happy in your rebellion against God right now. Woe to you. Fourth, you who are loved by the world are damned. Notice what the text says. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Verse 26. Again, notice that this is the exact opposite of blessed are you who are persecuted for the sake of the son of man or for righteousness sake, as Matthew puts it. It's the exact opposite. Instead of being persecuted for being godly in the world, you're well liked for being what? Ungodly. Yeah. Jesus in the upper room in John fifteen nineteen said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Well, if the world loves you, there's a problem, right? Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John seventeen fourteen said, I have given them your word speaking to the father. He says, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Well, if you're in the world and the world doesn't hate you, you're what? Of the world. John put it this way in John, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he's not saying, you know, you can't like your car or whatever. He's talking about sin, rebellion, things God hates. James 4.4, speaking to those who are melding and molding themselves to the world, said, You adulteresses, do you not know with friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you are a friend with the sin, the rebellion, the, the blasphemies, all of those things that God hates in the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. You're hostile to God. And Jesus is saying everyone in the world who loves the world and is loved by the world is in a bad state. Now he's not saying in order to be a Christian, you need to be hated and despised by everyone. He's not saying that, that if you are in the world, everybody's going to hate your guts. Okay. He's not saying that he's not saying everywhere you should go. You should be offending people. He isn't saying you're damned to hell. If you have unbelieving friends and relatives who actually like you, What Jesus is saying is this. If in the course of your life, you're you're not offering any offense to the world in your preaching of the gospel of your living to the glory of God, if you can be in a world that is hostile to God and run by the prince of the power of the air, Satan... And you look at your life, you look back to the weeks and the months before this time... And the years, and you think, you know, I never get persecuted. I never get shunned. No one ever gets mad at me for sharing the gospel. It's because what? You're not. The Christ righteousness is not reigning in your life. I don't care how often you go to church. Woe to you. If you have worldly values, worldly speech, worldly priorities, worldly dress, worldly thoughts, worldly desires, worldly actions, the world will love you. It will speak well of you. And if this is the case, it is a sure indication that you're going to be damned if you do not repent. That's what Jesus is saying. And look at the end of verse 26. Notice the company says, if that's you, look what kind of company you're keeping. He says, remember that their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. They loved the false prophets. Who did? Those who were in sin. Those who didn't want to hear the truth. Those who didn't want to glorify God. They loved the false prophets. 
Jesus is saying, if you're well loved by everybody in the world and you never get persecuted, you never get rejected, never get shunned, never get mistreated for living a righteous life or preaching the gospel, you're just like a false prophet. And that is a scary thing. Do you think you are spiritually rich apart from Christ? Woe to you. Do you think you're satisfied in your own self-righteousness and you don't need Jesus? You've got your own righteousness. Woe to you. Are you comfortable living in rebellion against God, having this duplicitous lifestyle where you kind of, you know, come to church and give God your Sunday morning crumbs and then the rest of the week you just live like the devil? When no one's living, you just do your own wicked carnal thing all the time? Oh, woe to you. Does the world love you? Does it speak well of you? And weeks and months and years go by, you never offend anyone. You've got co-workers and people you work with. They've, you've never offended them. They love you. You know what that means? You are of the world and judgment's coming. It shows that God's saving grace has not permeated your life. And it means that his bow is bent and his arrow is pointed at you. And why would Jesus, after speaking such encouraging words in the preceding verses, think about this. I mean, you know, all these people are going, oh, it was so encouraging last week. And then you get, whoa. You know, why would he just say, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, doesn't that seem kind of strange to you? Why would he ruin such a good hype? You know, why would he put such a damper on our joys? I'll tell you why. Because he loves sinners, that's why. Because God loves sinners. Because God is merciful and God is gracious. And he wants to make sure in this sermon that no one listening to him misses the point. And so he not only says it positively, he says it negatively just to make sure that there wouldn't be somebody there who might escape. Who might think they're doing good and yet perish. You know what the biggest... Grief is to preachers the most frustrating things for a preacher to go through. Well, I'm going to tell you anyways. It's when you realize that there are people in the congregation who don't know Christ. That, that is the most frustrating thing. You know they've heard the gospel because you've preached the gospel. You've encouraged them to examine their hearts. You've encouraged them to... Look at their life. You've you've called them to repentance. You've tried to remove every sort of excuse away from them. You've tried to get them to realize that they shouldn't trust in certain things and they should trust only in Christ. And yet, they come week after week. And they live one way at church and they live another way in the world. They live another way in their heart. And they don't love God and they don't love God's people and they don't give and they don't serve. They don't pray. They don't read their Bible. But if you were to ask them, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a Christian. They may even be able to tell you the gospel. They may even know it. They're deceived. Some know they aren't Christians and they're just fooling other people and they kind of take joy in, well, I've got everybody tricked on Sunday morning, but during the week I live another way. Others think they're saved, but they're not. But either way, if you're in either of those cases, woe to you. And Jesus 
asks us here in this text, do you think you're spiritually rich? You're spiritually satisfied? Life's full of laughter? Everything going well for you? Rejoicing? You're not persecuted. You're blending in. God's blessing in your life? Woe to you. And though the preacher wears out the pulpit and the pages of his Bible trying to convince people to examine themselves and be saved, he can't save them. Can't grant anybody repentance. I can't command saving grace to come upon somebody. Can't do it. And that's why it's the most frustrating thing as for a preacher to word to stand up there and know there's people who are not saved that they would leave not giving their life to Christ because they just they just love their sin too much. And some people think, well, you know, I don't know if this health thing's true, and if it is, I'll just have to deal with it. Well, if this is you, I want to let Jonathan Edwards speak to you from the grave. Edwards writes, quote, Some of you have seen buildings on fire. Imagine, therefore, within yourselves what a poor hand you would make at fighting with the flames if you were in the midst of so great and fierce a fire. You have often seen a spider or some other noisome insect when thrown into the midst of the furnace of fire and have observed how immediately it yields to the force of the flames. There is no long struggle, no fighting against the fire, no strength exerted to oppose the heat or to fly from it, but it immediately stretches forth itself and yields and the fire takes possession of it and at once it becomes full of fire. Here's a little image of what you will be the subjects of in hell except you repent and fly to Christ. However you may think that you will fortify yourself and bear as well you can, the first moment you shall be cast into hell, all your strength will sink and be utterly abolished. To encourage yourself that you will set yourself to bear hell's torments as well as you can is just as if a worm that is about to be thrown into a glowing furnace should swell and fortify itself to prepare itself to fight the flames. And what can you do with lightnings? What does... It signify to fight with them. What an absurd figure would a poor weak man make who in a thunderstorm should expect a flash of lightning upon his head or breast and should go forth with sword in hand to oppose it. When a stream of brimstone would at an instant drink up his spirits and his life and melt his sword. Consider these things, all you enemies of God and rejecters of Christ, whether you shall be old men or women Christless heads of family or young people or wicked children, be assured that if you do not hearken and repent, God intends to show his wrath and make his power known upon you. He intends to magnify himself exceedingly in sinking you down to hell. He intends to show his great majesty at the day of judgment before a vast assembly in your misery. Before a greater assembly... Many thousand fold than ever yet appeared on earth before a vast assembly of saints, a vast assembly of wicked men, a vast assembly of holy angels, and before the crew of devils. And God will before all these get himself honor in your destruction. You shall be tormented in the presence of them all. Then all will see that God is a great God indeed. Then all will see how dreadful a thing it is to sin against such a God and to reject such a Savior such love and grace as you have rejected and despised. And all will be filled with awe at the great sight. And all the saints and angels will look upon you and 
adore that majesty and that mighty power and that holiness and justice of God, which shall appear in your ineffable destruction and misery, end quote. When Jesus pronounces woe, he isn't kidding. He isn't jesting. And he isn't making metaphorical allusions to being put out of existence. He is warning people, unbelievers, that hell awaits them if they do not repent. Everyone needs to leave here understanding they are spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ, hungering and thirsting for Christ's righteousness, the righteousness that only he can give, grieving over your sin and realizing that when you live for Christ in the world, you're going to be persecuted. It is to be expected and you are to rejoice in it. But you leave here thinking that you're spiritually rich, that you're satisfied in your own righteousness and religiosity, laughing at your rebellion against God and well-loved by the people of the world. Jesus has a message for you. And that message is woe to you. Judgment is coming if you do not repent. So when you think of a text like this, it's sobering. I mean, I wish these verses weren't here in some respects. It was uh, all week I read about hell. Oh, talk about a bummer. But yet... Jesus puts it in here because this is just the medicine that some people need. Some people are not won by kind words, promises of heaven and glory to come. Some people need to know that judgment is coming. If that that person is you, you need to give your life to Christ today and don't delay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is so perfect. We would never think to utter such words of condemnation and woe upon people who would be so confused. And yet in your wisdom, in your grace, in your infinite knowledge, this is exactly what they needed back then as they heard that sermon for the first time. And it's exactly what we need today. Father, if there is somebody here who has set their heart up against you, has been deceived into thinking that they are saved and are not, or who think that they're going to bear up under your judgment if, in fact, hell might be true. Or if there's people who just know they're not saved and they don't want to be saved because they don't want to leave their sin and they don't want to give the rule of their life over to you, I pray right now that you would break their heart open their eyes, see the terrible state, help them to see the terrible state that they're in so they would fly to the refuge and fortress, which is Christ, that they would realize that God is a God of grace and mercy and compassion, and today is the day of salvation. But if they wait too long, there's nothing but woe. And Father, for the rest of us who know you, who love you, who see your grace working in our life, I just pray that we would be extra diligent to live for you in the world to speak your truth, to model your truth, to share your gospel. And that, Father, we would also, as believers, have a passion and burden to pray for the lost and share the gospel with them. And, Father, we thank you for your majesty, your holiness and justice, as well as those other attributes which are kinder. And, Father, I pray that we would worship you for who you are, knowing that all of this gives us a clear picture of the God who saves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.